Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's podcast, lawyers do not have to worry about ChatGPT taking their jobs just yet. And wedding season is off and running. We're going to talk about what's trending up and what is trending down for weddings and bachelor parties this year. Then the house is winning more than ever in Vegas. So we dug into some of the shady things casinos are doing at the blackjack table. Plus, we have a very special Winners of the Weekend segment where Neil and I talk about entering our Swifty era. It's Tuesday, May 30th. Let's ride. Neil, it's the last show before we switch to the early morning 7 a.m. schedule. How are we feeling? A little tired. I think my body is just tired in preparation for it, but I'm excited to, to get up early. Like I've said before, more life. <laughs> I know. We love to have more life. Would... I, I was just thinking that I grew up watching like the Today Show and listening to the radio in the morning, and I always thought to myself, Man, these guys get up so early and then have to present and talk, and then now I'm living it. Yeah, we are those guys now. But yeah, just to reiterate, episodes will drop at 7 a.m. each day going forward, which means you can finally listen to Morning Brew Daily in the morning. Yeah. So tell a friend, tell your mom, tell anyone who listens, 7 a.m. episodes are here starting tomorrow. On your commute, uh, we will be there with you, and we're super excited. Uh, let's get into the news Big win for all of us this week uh, because we may not have to hear the words debt ceiling for maybe another two years. Thank goodness. <laughs> On Saturday night, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy finally reached an agreement that would suspend the debt ceiling and allow the government to borrow money again. Uh, remember, if they didn't secure a deal, then the U.S. would default on its debts uh, by June 5th, one week from today. And the economic fallout would be pretty calamitous, as we talked about on a previous podcast. So thanks to the deal, the worst case scenario looks like it has been avoided. What is in this agreement besides raising the debt ceiling for another two years? Uh, there is a cap on non-defense government spending next year and then a 1% increase in 2024. This is basically a budget cut because the last time I checked, inflation was running at 5%. So if you increase something by 1%, you are... Uh, not raising it at all. Um, and then it also adds work requirements for many people aged 50 to 54 on food stamps. The cutoff was 40, 49, age 49 currently. Uh, this bill claws back some of that $80 billion that was handed to the IRS to hire more people and beef up enforcement. And then finally, it aims to speed up some environmental reviews of energy products so that or energy projects so they don't get tied up in red tape. This may be a hot take, Neil, but this is exactly why no one really cares about the debt yeah. ceiling. And when I say no one, I mostly mean the market because like, despite all the doomsday scenarios that we've been talking about over the last month, stocks have just been slowly right. inching up. They and, knew like, this was going to happen. Right, because you always know a deal is going to get done. And this was a pretty like unsexy version of a debt ceiling deal, in my opinion, because, yeah, we didn't get like these huge cuts that Republicans were asking for. Um, there was just like small little tweaks here and there. They clawed back some of that money. That, that was a big term we kept hearing is how much money were they going to claw back yeah. from the IRS from um, unspent COVID, COVID so. era spending. And like overall, the New York Times analysis suggests that over a decade, only $650 billion will be kind of uh, saved. And that is just not a lot in the grand scheme of things, even though $650 billion sounds like a lot when we're talking about a $31 trillion uh, debt. That's not, that's a drop in the bucket, basically. Yeah. 
Uh, the problem is, I hate to say this, but we're not across the finish line yet. Yeah. Both Biden and McCarthy need to uh, sell this deal to their uh, respective parties. And there are some Republicans, uh, especially on the right wing, who are like, we want more cuts and we are opposed to this deal because Congress needs to approve it. Um, the House will vote on it tomorrow and then the Senate will vote on it a couple days after that. And it's it's. They think they have enough votes to get this done, but mm -hmm. it's not 100 percent a slam dunk. I still think you do not want to be. Uh, maybe, I mean, there are these lawmakers exist, but like, I can't imagine you will be a lawmaker that blocks this deal from going through and we end up hitting June 5th. Right. I think that how they're going to sell it to their constituents is basically this is kicking the can down the road because it comes due in 2025, which is after the next presidential right. election. So I think both parties can, both leaders can come to their parties and say, hey, we're probably going to win the White House next year. Then we can do what we want to do with mm -hmm. this. So I think it's, that's how they'll, they'll sell it if I were in their shoes. Because yeah, it, it, it is, you, no one wants to hold it up, but I can see how that can be kind of the, the selling point. We need to abolish the debt ceiling. <laughs> that is my position. I don't take a lot of positions. Uh, that is one I have. Um, let's move on. So there's this lawyer named Stephen Schwartz. He is facing possible sanctions after he used ChatGPT to write a brief for a lawsuit, and it did not go particularly well. Uh, for some background, this guy, Roberto Mata, sued the airline Avianca over an injury he suffered when an employee with a serving cart knocked into him while he was traveling. Normal lawsuit stuff. So Avi, after Avianca tried to toss the suit, Mata's lawyers sent a 10-page brief to the judge that cited more than six court decisions to back up their claim. We all remember Martinez versus Delta Airlines, Zickerman versus Korean Airlines, several others. Those are, are very well-known cases. Or not. When Avianca's lawyers and the judge looked at this brief and researched the, those historic cases that I just mentioned, they realized that none of those happened. The cases were totally made up out of thin air. Even the quotes it cited were fake. Sure enough, Schwartz admitted he used ChatGPT to write the brief, and has been, as has been known to happen, the AI chatbot did what's being called hallucinated and made everything up. My favorite part of this story is that he said that he asked ChatGPT if they were real. So he asked them multiple times, like, is Varghese a real case? And ChatGPT ChatGPT said, yes, it is a real case. And then he says, what is your source? And it provided sources for it too. And then he also finished up by saying, are the other cases you provided fake? And it responded, no, the other cases I provided are real and can be found in reputable legal databases. So oh I guess he did kind of try to check his work, but he checked it using the very thing that uh, is unreliable in the first place. Right. Well, apparently he had never used ChatGPT before and or had never learned listened to this podcast because he would know that right. these things get facts wrong. It's right. Just, they, they don't know the difference between fact and fiction. There's some really funny examples uh, of like chatbots getting stuff wrong. If you ask Bard how many E's are in ketchup, Bard is Google's chatbot. If you ask Bard how many E's are in ketchup, it says zero. <laughs> and But there are like more nefarious things where uh, a law professor discovered that ChatGPT had placed him on a list of legal scholars who had sexually harassed right. someone. Remember there was that Australian mayor who... <laughs> ChatGPT said was convicted of bribery and sentenced to prison. So this things, these things can range from like very amusing mm -hmm. to actually very disastrous. If you take 
chatbots at their word. Yeah. So I guess that's a lesson. Honestly, though, I do think that there is a future for AI bots in kind of the legal space because that was one of the professions that people really thought that these chatbots would disrupt. Obviously, in this case, didn't go very well. But there's a company called Do Not Pay, which kind of bills itself as the world's first robot lawyer. And that's handling much lower stakes things like getting out of certain uh, like parking tickets yeah. and just these little annoying uh, like bureaucratic things that you don't really want to do. You can have the AI chatbot do. So I've seen it perform very well, like negotiating an Xfinity internet bill. The only problem it did have at one point was it wrote insert email here instead of actually inserting the customer's email. So oh. obviously they still can't quite. I thought you were going to say it. the chatbot wasn't around from like 3 to 5 p.m. when the Comcast guy was going to come. I know it was it was on a it was talking to a representative online though so it was kind of like bot versus bot almost um but yeah so I do think that there's a future for these AI chatbots but not in this Avianca good on the Avianca lawyers by the way well, for I mean I, I think it was, I think if you are any well versed in aviation law history and you see these uh things right. that were cited and you know immediately they were like oh, something's up and then their first thought according to the article is that you know, maybe this guy used yeah. ChatGVT because I don't know where he got these things yeah. from. Yeah, very funny. All right, Neil, let's move on. State Farm is pulling out of California. That's right. Like a bad neighbor, State Farm is not there anymore. You can boo if you want. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm listening good. to the story. The insurance giant is stopping new home insurance sales in California, citing wildfire risk and skyrocketing construction costs. When you see the data, you kind of see where they're coming from. So over the past five years, there have been more than 7,000 wildfires each year, with an average of 2 million acres getting burned, mm. and over 25,000 houses have been affected. So that just makes insuring these homes extremely expensive for these companies and also the people who are paying the insurance yeah. claims as well. Like it's, it, we're entering an era of like insurance in, meltdown basically. Yeah. Insurance in, in certain States, it just, the juice is not worth the squeeze. Uh, AIG last year notified thousands of California homeowners that their policies would not be renewed. They redirected them to new policies under one of their affiliate things, uh, affiliate programs that cost three to five times as much. So yeah, it, it's brutal. Don't move to a I, don't move to a wildfire area. It's easy to say, but that's where a lot of the growth opportunities are, like mm -hmm. east of the Bay Area, where land is you know cheaper and there's a huge affordability crisis. So you're like, where will where can I move? But yeah. to these places that are closer to wildfire risk, and so you just have this you know huge double problem. Right, and it's not just California. Uh, insurance are pulling out of Louisiana and Florida, uh, especially after the last year's hurricane season. Hurricane Ian was the second costliest insured loss ever globally. Yeah. And, wow. and this is, it took us 17 years to really recover from Hurricane Katrina. And now like this, the storm season is, is heating back up. But yeah, you talked about kind of the, the gross cycle that people are going through. Another thing that is looming is that there's ratings downgrades looming over these property insurers. Mm -hmm. So I didn't actually know this, but insurers half get graded on like how just similar to how like their risk portfolio, yeah, their risk portfolio. And a lot of them need to have an A grading because in order for someone to secure a mortgage, you usually have to have one of these A graded insurers insure the property. But if these insurers are getting downgraded, that means it's harder for people who are trying to get 
mortgages to find an A-rater, which makes policies more expensive, yeah. which makes owning a home even worse. So it's this vicious cycle where no one's really winning. And yeah, it makes you want to kind of move into <laughs> the the heartland. The heartlands. But then you have tornadoes I there. Know. So like, where are you? They say that the, the most climate proof... Uh, the most climate-proof city in the United States is Duluth, Minnesota. All right, let's let's pack. Everyone's our bags. moving there. Who's like, I can't buy a house in Florida. I can't buy a house in California. I don't. I'm gonna be in Tornado Alley. I'm gonna get an earthquake over in San Francisco. Duluth is just on the shores of Lake Superior. It might be cold, but you're not, you know you're it's maybe to be. somewhat insulated from all of these risks. Yeah. All right. Before we jump into our next story, we're gonna take a quick break. All right, Neil, are you a casino guy? Uh, I'm not a casino guy. Like, I don't seek it out. But uh, if one is in the area, I will go for an hour and lose a lot of money. Uh, there we go. Well, I hope you don't go and play blackjack because blackjack players lost nearly $1 billion at casinos in Vegas last year. That's the second highest loss on record after 2007. So digging into why people were losing so much kind of made my blood boil, Neil. Basically, casinos are changing the rules on players. So Blackjack has historically paid out a ratio of 3 to 2 when a player hits 21, a.k.a. Blackjack, on the first two cards. That means a gambler would win $15 for every $10 they bet. But now, many Blackjack tables on the strip are paying out 6 to 5, which means that the same $10 yields only $12. So you combine those lower payouts with the fact that casinos are raising the minimum bet amount at certain peak hours, and you have a recipe for these record losses. It's kind of crazy that casinos are getting I, away with this. I, I did not know that one could just change the payouts for Blackjack. I thought it was like written in stone like Hammurabi's code. <laughs> like, this is what you get for Blackjack. That is the game. You yeah. know, it, it's like changing, you know, first and 10 to first and 15 and in football forever. Yeah, so I, I did not know that, like, casinos could unilaterally change the payouts. But it kind of makes sense. And you're also seeing the minimum tables go up. I mean, I haven't been to Vegas in a while, but mm -hmm. I think the whole point of this is that they are want to appeal to a more luxury crowd mm -hmm. because you there was a Caesar CEO. He had a crazy quote. Let me find it. He was just like, look, we are packed. We're packed to the brim, so you're kicking out the lowest end. I see no reason that that needs to stop or would stop. So they're just like, we don't need you, yeah. uh, Riff Raff. You're, you're not paying as much as the high rollers. Uh, we're already packed to the brim, right. so it, get out of here. It was actually interesting because fewer people went to Vegas yeah. in 2022 than pre-pandemic in 2019, but casinos' profit was $8.3 which which was 25% more than pre-pandemic. So even though less people are going, they're squeezing out 25% more dollars out of those people. And it, it speaks to that quote that they're basically just like, we're, we they want richer, yeah, we want richer people to come in. We want them to gamble more and we'll make more money that way. Yeah. So they're just kind of squeezing out these lower end. It's not just blackjack that they're uh, changing the odds though. And roulette tables, yeah. 78 of the uh, 278 roulette tables now have triple zero. I don't know if anyone has seen a roulette table, uh, who's listening to this, or a roulette wheel, usually there's red squares, black squares, and then uh, two, there's a zero and then a double zero. And that already reduces your odds below 50% if you put it on red or, red or black. And to introduce a triple zero 
is is tough and these and and lowers your odds even more and people just don't know honestly too because yeah. you go you just assume a roulette table is a roulette table you go and you, you you play and then you also sit down on a blackjack table and you assume the payouts are what they've always been but they're changing those as well so it is a bit crazy that they can get away with this um but yeah it's yeah. We're, we're in the era of record revenue and record losses so don't go play blackjack, I guess, is the, is the, t- is the, the lesson of this story. I was never a subscriber to the greedflation theory, but uh-huh. this is pretty straight up this greedflation. Is Absolutely. All right, moving on. Uh, I've got a feeling oh, gosh. that you're going to hear the song a lot this summer. Now that we're on the other side of Memorial Day, uh, wedding and bachelorette parties are in full swing. In fact, I just went to one this weekend of Morning Brews co-founder Alex. Uh, congrats, Alex and Carly. Super fun. Uh, so the Brews newsletter crew just wrote an entire edition about weddings. So I thought we could chat about the trends that you should expect and maybe not expect to see at all the weddings you're going to this year. So just as a note, most of this information comes from the wedding website, The Knot, from a survey they did of a bunch of couples getting married. So trend, let's start with trending up. Lab-grown diamonds. 30 per six of center stones for wedding rings were grown in a lab, which is double the share in 2020. These apparently are indistinguishable from mine diamonds. They come with none of the ethical bag- baggage, and they're much cheaper. So a one-carat lab-grown diamond went for $1,430 earlier this year, while a similarly similarly sized mine diamond went for five over $5,000. It's the Diamonds are the greatest marketing campaign of all time, but I don't know. Sometimes this is a tough sale to the significant other, saying like, Technically, it's cheaper and it looks the same and it's it's better ethically, but people still like the the classicness of a mine diamond. So that's good to see that yeah. it's it's on the rise because I think that's overall a, a, a great thing. Maybe the ta- maybe the taboo is wearing off. All right, so we also trending up as signature cocktails. The share of weddings with signature cocktails has increased seventeen percentage points over the last five years. Yeah. I love what do you this think of that? because, well, so obviously I had to do some additional research here and figure out what they're naming these cocktails. <laughs> and there's some funny ones. There's Bloody Mary Me. There's My Tie the Knot. There's also My Guy or My Gal. And then the final one, Mint to Be. So, ah, I mean, they're I all, that. they're pretty cheesy, but I like the idea of the signature cocktails because, uh, yeah, it's replacing, I, I don't want to steal your thunder. but No, it's fine. Let's just go straight into that. Trending down is hashtag. Hit me, yeah. So in 2010, like in the early 2010s, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing like the cringiest wedding hashtag you've ever seen on Facebook and Instagram. And that was meant to organize pictures. We're sort of in a different era now. And ha- 30, only 32% of couples created a Western wedding hashtag last year which is down from 55 percent in 2017 this is a great trend i mean hashtags (laughs) as someone who works in the social media space too like hashtags have definitely lost their luster and no one wants to be caught dead posting like a 10 character hashtag about like someone's last name disappearing so yeah that i'm i'm bullish on on the hashtags going away um, all right, let's. The final thing I want to talk about bachelor and bachelorette parties because I know we both got a couple this weekend or not th- this summer, and they are so pricey. Everyone's balling out right now post pandemic. In 2023, the average cost of a party is going to be $10,800, $10, according to the party planning 
uh, app batch up from seventy seven hundred dollars in twenty twenty one. So that's inflation and and a lot of things going into that. So that means the cost per person uh, for a typical nine person party is twelve hundred dollars. This surprised me. Bachelor parties are more expensive than bachelorette parties. Yeah, I could I can kind of see it because. The thing that comes to mind, obviously, is golf because <laughs> I knew you were gonna say golf that. is just such a staple of the bachelor party, and <laughs> golf is just pricey as heck. So that's, I mean, good, good for the gals for for slipping in or just having less expensive uh, activities to yeah, do I in general. I didn't think that was gonna be the case, but people are really just like spending so much that they need to take out credit card debt. Uh, in a survey, 52% of people who went to a bachelor or bachelorette party said they took on credit card debt. Oh man, that means for That's my tough. for my bachelor party, we're just going we're going to Duluth, Minnesota, and we're going to Dave and Buster's. Actually, yeah. I might rack up some credit card debt there. So <laughs> that's a good place. All right, Neil, thanks for the the wedding facts. Uh, we're definitely going to a lot this summer, so I'll drop them there. But let's get into our winners of the weekend. So usually this is our Monday segment, but it's Tuesday after a long weekend, so we had plenty of time to think about our winners. Luckily, it was very easy to pick them this weekend. I speak for both Neil and I when I say our winners of the weekend were us. That's because you and I went to the Taylor Swift concert at MetLife Stadium on Sunday. Neil, give me some of your takeaways uh, from that crazy experience. I'm still grinning. Like whenever you say it, it was, it was, a, it was a very, very amazing experience. Uh, some of my takeaways was the production. Because you are entertaining a football stadium of people for three and a half hours. More. I think it was four. Really? Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. But for a long time. You need to have like constant motion, constant stimulation. And then the choreography there, the storytelling, yeah. the costume changes, the highs and the lows of the music were all so perfectly thought out and well executed, taking you from one music era to the next uh, of Taylor Swift's. And on that, I think like the golden example of that was I had no idea how long it was. I was like, that, yeah. that could have gone on for another three hours. So I thought from a production standpoint, obviously she has the world's best music producers, uh, live event producers there, and it really showed. Another one was the merch. So I've been at Newark Airport at 5.30 a.m. on a weekday, and I've never seen as long of a line of a line as the merch tents at Taylor Swift. I mean, it was honestly mind-blowing. We were just commenting on the whole time. We initially talked about Taylor Swift's tour earlier on this pod. We estimated that she brings in $2.4 million in merch sales each night. Honestly, that seemed low. Seems so low, yeah. But the fact is that once we got in the stadium at like 4 p.m., there were no like smaller mediums left. And so everyone was just getting these XLs yeah. and they were just buying them anyway. Luckily it's kind of the style, like the oversized yeah. look right now. But yeah, I saw like 13 year old girls holding like piles of clothes that stretched five feet high. They were $500 bill. Yeah. Once you got to the front of that line, you wanted to make the most of right. it and people were just buying whatever they could get their hands on. But yeah, that was a sight to behold for sure. Yeah, I guess I don't really have that much other takeaway to say that she is a world-class performer, just like at her peak right now. Uh, the economic activity, I was just thinking about the economic activity that she's yeah. generating from one of these shows, from the merch sales that we talked about, to the food vendors, to the people coming in to stay at the hotels, to going to the restaurants. Like, there has to be 
a good chance that she adds 0.5% to <laughs> second quarter GDP. She's powering the entire, yeah, the GDP of America right now, as she should. She's incredible. All right, what are your takeaways? All right, one of my takeaways is I've been to NFL games. I've been to Premier League soccer games, but I have never been to a stadium as loud as the Taylor Swift concert. It's because there's 80,000 plus people screaming all at the same time and everyone knows every single word to every song. So it was truly one of those things where you felt it in your chest. And obviously like the stadium is shaking. You just feel the entire environment. So I've just never been in a scenario as loud as that one in my entire life. They were, they were shrieking hard. Yeah. And then my, we were too. I know we were, we're, we were part of the 80,000 strong. And then my final takeaway was they give you these wristbands when you walk in. So as soon as you walk in the gates, you scan your ticket, they put this wristband on your wrist. You don't put in any information. You don't click the on button, but at some point in the show, they all start lighting up into this synchronized light show. And that was a big highlight for a lot of the people I talked to because mm. it feels like magic. How are these things knowing where you sit? And it turns out it's not magic. It's actually just an RFID chip, which stands for radio frequency ID. And then they also use these infrared sensors to kind of locate where you are and I, I read an article from Slate, actually from their 1989 tour, because they used uh, she used the same technology, and they were basically saying it's like your television remote. That's RFID and infrared technology working together. So it felt like magic, and it did look magical, like seeing the stadium light up. But the wristbands were a big hi highlight for me. <sighs> what a week! What yeah, a weekend! I would I would go to another show. Absolutely. I'm gonna look. She's doing the Rust Belt next. Yeah, so I'll go to I'll go to Pittsburgh or Kansas City. Or yeah, something. let's do it. Detroit. All right, let's run through the week ahead quickly. Um, Elizabeth Holmes is reporting to prison this morning to serve her 11 to begin serving her 11 year sentence for defrauding investors through startup Theranos. It's a minimum security prison camp in Bryan, Texas. Apparently, the first thing you do as an inmate there is work in the kitchen. Oh, what's she what's she chefing up? Little not, blood, not, blood sausage? <laughs> probably blood sausages. We also have Pride Month uh, starting on Thursday with June 1st is also coming at a time when a bunch of brands like Target and Bud Light are catching heat from the right wing for aligning themselves with the LGBTQ community, as many corporations do this time of year. We have the May jobs report on Friday. The economy is continue is expected to continue adding jobs, uh, though the employment rate, unemployment rate is projected to tick up. The most wholesome thing ever is on Thursday, which is the Scripps National Spelling Bee Finals. I love it. They're they're getting so good. I wonder if we're going to get a cheating scandal, though. Someone has ChatGPT in the ear feeding them the answers. But, yeah, you're right. These these little these little eighth graders are just so impressive. So smart, yeah. Uh, and then finally we got uh, sports, NBA Finals between the Heat and the Jazz uh, kicks off on Thursday. And then the Stanley Cup Finals between the Florida Panthers, the Vegas Golden Knights right now. Florida, so hot right South now. South Florida is killing it in the yeah. sports realm. Uh, that is our show. Wish, wish it was all Taylor Swift. So we'll see you tomorrow at 7 a.m. Set your alarms. Wake up with us. Let's it's do ju this. It thing. just hit me. Yeah. Uh, you can email us with whatever you thought about the show at morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Major shout out to our entire crew who puts the show together. Emily Milliron is back, and she is our editor and producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are the associate producers. Yuchenna Waogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup quit after she learned. Oh, I revealed the gender. <laughs> after they learned that uh, we were waking up at 5 a.m., Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's Ooh. run it back at 7 a.m. tomorrow.